Beach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. prayers are with you and I love you very much he was the light of my life and he, he meant everything to me and I just want him home just like everybody else does it's not fair you know he's a 13 year old boy it's not fair that he's just out there in this big old world with no one to comfort him no one to reassure him that everything's going to be okay let's face it we all have our share of embarrassing events that have happened during our lifetimes like the time I confidently led my first date into the wrong white Pontiac Grand Am after a night out at the movie theater. It sure looked like my stepmother's car at the time, but the look of confusion and concern on the woman's face when I proudly opened the door for my middle school companion was surely embarrassing. But it wasn't devastating or reputation ruining. It was funny. But sometimes people do things in their private lives that, while they may seem of interest to them, They know that if such information became public, it would transcend embarrassment and actually become detrimental to their lives. So they keep the information a dirty little secret, stashed away for no one to find. But how far might one man be willing to go to protect his dirty little secret? There's something about life in Durango, Colorado that draws visitors in from around the world. Maybe it's the mountain air or the many citizens who passing travelers have described as nice and friendly. Based in the southwestern portion of Colorado, near New Mexico, rugged but beautiful mountains surround the city. And although some of the terrain is rugged, there is no shortage of attractions and activities. Visitors to the area can look to spend time on the Animas River to do some rafting, tour the ruins in Mesa Verde National Park, try their hand at gold mining at the Old Hundred Gold Mine, or relax at the Trimble Hot Springs. Needless to say, on the outside, it sounds like the perfect place to call home. So much so that roughly 19,000 people place their roots there. And while the city is rich in history and bountiful with amenities, it was a mystery in 2012 that gripped the community and left many wondering how such a devastating tragedy could happen in the area. On February 6, 1999, Mark and Elaine Redwine welcomed their youngest son, Dylan, into the world. Both Mark and Elaine, who had been married since 1991, had a previous child together and were looking to complete their family when Dylan was born. Although the couple now had two children of their own, Mark had a son from a previous marriage. Quickly, Elaine identified that Dylan was going to be a sweet and precious boy right from the beginning. As the years passed by, Dylan grew into just that. He deeply loved his mother, father, and brother, Corey. But unfortunately, in 2007, the Redwine family underwent a massive change in their lives. We got married in 1991, and I believe our divorce was final in 2007. Even though Elaine and Mark had divorced, the two continued living in the Durango area with Elaine living in the home the kids had grown up in, whereas Mark moved into a home near Viacito Lake just 18 miles outside of Durango. While this was a drastic change in all of their lives, Elaine and Mark were able to make the custody situation work for the children. I can't remember specifically what the court order said, but Mark was over the road, so he was not in town very often. And I was okay with him having Dylan whenever he wanted to see Dylan. I let Corey make up his own mind because at that time, Corey was 20 years old and 
you know, his relationship with Mark could be what they wanted it to be. But if I'm not mistaken, I think Dylan was supposed to see him every weekend. I, I, I can't really remember what the custody rules were at that time. With Mark working as a long-haul truck driver, Elaine was comfortable taking care of both children. Although she herself worked a full-time job as a financial aid officer at a local community college, she knew she could rely on Corey to help Dylan get to school or any of his extracurricular activities after hours. Corey and Dylan had grown especially close over the years, so Corey was happy to help his mother look after his younger brother. It was great. Obviously, their seven-year age difference, um, you know, we were kind of in different parts of our lives, but as far as living under the same household um, and having to go, you know, living together, we uh, assumed, or had a very strong and tight-knit relationship. Dylan needed someone to take him to practice, to play catch with him, to take him shopping, to talk about girls with him, um, and these are all things that being a primary figure in his life, you know, driving him to school and taking him, you know, to practice that I was able to provide for him. Thankfully, despite how traumatic a divorce can be at such a young age, Dylan was able to lean on support from his family and more importantly, his friends. Dylan made friends with just about everyone he had come into contact with. And according to Elaine, he was very in tune with his empathy towards others. As Dylan continued making friendships throughout his childhood, his loyalty to those in his inner circle was second to none. He always made sure to take care of the relationships he had formed over the years. Although Dylan had many friends, he made everyone feel welcome, even the new kid. In 2011, when the 12-year-old Ryan Nava had moved to Bayfield, just west of Durango, he had a chance encounter with then 12-year-old Dylan Redwine that forever changed his life. I went to the Family Dollar in Bayfield with my grandma, and uh, I saw a bunch of kids about my age, and I was new to town. So um, I, I think Dylan noticed me, so he came over to me and asked if I wanted to hang out. So that afternoon, I went to uh, Wesley Ravens, and since then, I was his friend. While friendships were a big part of Dylan's life, in January of 2012, Elaine had remarried to her longtime boyfriend, Michael and decided to move out of the Durango area after finding a new job and home in Monument, not far from Colorado Springs. She felt that the boys could be provided with a fresh change of scenery. After all, she had primary custody of Dylan, and at this point, Corey was 20 years old and could decide whether or not he wanted to spend time with Mark. While Dylan had a close relationship with his mother, brother, and friends, as he was entering his formidable teenage years, the relationship he had with his father began to crumble. Corey's relationship with Mark had completely deteriorated, so when Dylan went to visit his father, he had to do so alone. During Thanksgiving break in 2012, Dylan was due to fly down to Durango on a court-ordered visitation with his father. It was also at this time that his maternal grandmother recently received a diagnosis of cancer. According to Elaine, Dylan was hesitant to visit with his father, stating that he'd rather be home with her and spend the holidays with her side of the family. Elaine reached out to her attorney and asked what would happen if Dylan decided not to go to the court-ordered visit, to which her attorney explained that it could result in her losing primary custody. After weighing all of her options, Elaine felt she had no choice but to arrange for Dylan to fly to Durango. He got bored up in Vicedo. He was often there alone, and he wanted to see his friends in Bayfield. I mean, that was really important to him. On November 17th, Dylan was slated to fly from Colorado Springs to Denver, but his flight was canceled last minute. So Elaine texted Mark to let him know. Dylan's flight got canceled today from Colorado Springs to Denver. There's a flight leaving Colorado Springs at 144, getting to Durango at 5.13, so I'll book that one. Dylan tried calling, but you didn't answer. Five hours passed and still no response came in from Mark regarding the canceled flight or the change of plans. So Elaine texted Mark again. I texted you and Dylan tried calling you. His flight was canceled as I'm sure you knew as the attendant told me. They sent a message to your email. His flight was rescheduled for tomorrow. You should have told me it was canceled. This is Elaine and you know that. On the afternoon of the 18th, 
Elaine and Dylan arrived at the airport in Colorado Springs. She purchased a guardian pass to escort Dylan to his gate. It's a, a guardian pass, if you will, and it just allows me to go back to Dylan's gate because normally you, ha- you have to be a ticketed passenger to get back in the area, the security area. After grabbing some food together, the two sat at the terminal's gate and waited until the flight was set to board. When passengers were called to board to the plane for the 144 flight to Durango, Elaine wanted Dylan to know that he had a stop in Denver to change planes and wanted to instruct him on what to do. He had a, I think he's switching planes in Denver, so we just discussed, text me when you get to Denver and let me know that you get on the plane, okay? And then I hooked him. As he was boarding his plane, he was walking away and he always called me Mutti, which is German for mom. And uh, I said, oh, you're too old to give your mom a hug. And he came back and gave me a hug. At 5.44 p.m., nearly 30 minutes after Dylan's plane was scheduled to arrive in Durango, Elaine texted Mark. Did you get Dylan okay? Nope, didn't show up. Is the plane delayed? Don't have flight info, waiting to hear from him. Oh my God, go in the airport and ask. Eventually, Mark was able to locate Dylan, and the two departed for his home in Vallecito Lake. As they were driving, Mark informed Dylan that he would have to run some errands early the following day. So Dylan made plans to meet up with some friends early in the morning around 6.30 a.m. After making plans with his friend Ryan Nava, Dylan noticed he had a missed call from his mother. Did your dad get you? To which Dylan replied, Yes. Mark and Dylan drove to Walmart to grab a few items for Dylan's visit. After doing some shopping, Mark asked Dylan if he wanted to go sit down at a restaurant for dinner. But Dylan didn't seem too interested in doing that and asked if they could go grab some fast food from McDonald's instead, to which Mark obliged. The two sat in Mark's vehicle and ate their burgers and fries before heading to the house in Vallecito. After arriving and settling in, Mark told Dylan that he was headed upstairs to bed. Dylan told his dad that he was going to watch some TV and crash on the couch as he usually did when he was there for visits. By 9.30 p.m., only the white noise from the television hung in the air. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. morning of November 19th, around 7.30 a.m., Mark was getting ready to go and run the errands he had planned and saw that Dylan was still asleep on the couch. He woke his son and told him that he would be back shortly, to which Dylan acknowledged. At around 11 a.m., Mark arrived back at his home and saw that Dylan wasn't around. After searching through the house, Mark began trying to call and text his son to no avail. Eventually, he drove into Bayfield and went to the home of Dylan's friend, Tristan, Mark questioned Tristan and his parents, asking if they had seen or heard from Dylan throughout the day, to which they had stated they had not. After not hearing from or seeing Dylan for several hours, Mark began to grow concerned. At 4.32 p.m., he texted Elaine. Elaine, I was wondering if you have heard from Dylan. I've been trying to reach him all afternoon. It's really worrying when I'm seven hours away and get a message like this from you. I haven't heard from Dylan today. Where did you leave him or last see him? Uh, I went to town for errands and he was fine. I'm just concerned and thought you may have heard from him. Was he at the Vallecito house? I'm concerned as well. Please let me know when you find him. Yes, at the lake, and I will. For both parents, it was odd that Dylan would just up and leave without communicating to either one of them where he was heading. As the sun was beginning to set, it became even more concerning 
especially because Mark lived in a mountainous area, surrounded by predatory wildlife. For Elaine, none of this was making any sense. She was aware that Dylan didn't want to spend that weekend with Mark, but it wasn't in his nature to just disappear and possibly scare his parents. 20 minutes after Mark had initially texted her asking if she had heard from their son, he texted her again, but it became quickly apparent that the things Mark was saying weren't quite adding up. I didn't want to freak you out as I'm sure he's fine, but don't think I am not concerned. I just left the Bayfield Marshal's office and I'm headed back to the house. Did you get into a fight with him or something? How long has he been missing? No, we talked and everything is fine. Several hours. Well, it's not fine. He's missing. Nearly an hour had passed by and Elaine hadn't heard back from Mark. Her hope was that Dylan had returned back to his house and was speaking with his father. But her maternal instinct told her to reach out to the marshal's office herself to see what efforts were being made to find Dylan since Mark had initially contacted them. The person she spoke with explained that Mark had never called the office, and furthermore, that they had no reports of anyone, especially an endangered teenager, being missing. At 5.40 p.m., Elaine texted Mark. Have you heard anything from Dylan? You said you called the marshal's office, but they have no record of you calling them. I called them. Another 40 minutes passed by before Elaine once again texted Mark. Have you heard from him? No, and I am extremely concerned at this point. I just left Tristan's house and he has not seen him. Waiting for the sheriff to call back. I am doing all I can and will let you know the moment I hear from him. But due to the fact that Mark had already once lied to her, Elaine explained exactly what she thought with little regard for Mark's feelings. He wouldn't just leave. He would have called me. I am so suspect of you right now. How could he just disappear? Despite trying to remain calm nearly five hours away in Colorado Springs, Elaine immediately began heading for Durango in hopes of finding her son. As she was making her way down to help search for the 13-year-old boy, La Plata County Sheriff's deputies began coordinating search and rescue efforts with the help of canine units in hopes of finding Dylan safe and sound. Upper Pine River Fire Protection District Deputy Chief Roy Vreeland, who arrived with one of his working canines, asked Mark if there was anything that he may have Dylan sent on so that they could attempt to track him. Mark handed Deputy Chief Vreeland a pillowcase, stating that most of Dylan's belongings, such as his cell phone and backpack, were now gone from the house. Mark also noticed that Dylan's fishing pole was missing, so searchers turned their attention to Viacito Lake, hoping that the teen was stranded on shore somewhere. Unfortunately, all search efforts in the area and of the lake were a dead end. At around 11 p.m. that evening, Mark walked into his house, shut off all the lights, and seemingly went to bed. Officers and volunteers found his nonchalant behavior to be strange, especially when it came to locating his young son, something Elaine had also found odd during her text message exchange with him. While Mark seemingly halted his efforts, other searchers continued working until 1 a.m. Though the circumstances were a bit suspicious, investigators initially believed Dylan simply ran away. But as investigators began working the case, eventually speaking with both Mark and Elaine, they knew their next step was to reach out to some of Dylan's friends, one of which was Ryan Nava. Ryan explained to investigators that on the evening of November 18th, when Dylan first arrived in Durango, the two had exchanged text messages making plans to meet up the following morning at around 6.30 a.m. But early on the 19th, when Ryan texted and called Dylan, he wasn't getting any messages back, and his calls were instead going straight to voicemail. It was uncharacteristic for Dylan not to stick to his plans, let alone have his phone shut off. On November 24th, cadaver dogs had picked up on Dylan's scent, which led them back to Viacito Lake. And over the course of the next two days, divers scoured the lake floor with sonar, but there were no signs of a body. Unfortunately, none of the information that friends and family alike had shared with police helped them to locate Dylan's whereabouts. 
What's been most frustrating about this search and our investigation is there simply are not any clues. And with an absence of clues, that means we have to check every conceivable possibility. La Plata County Sheriff Dan Bender, speaking in the previous clip, also explained to the media that the FBI was now involved in the search and that altogether over 50 investigators were working together as part of a task force to find young Dylan Redwine. Just 10 days after Dylan had initially been reported missing, investigators searched through Mark's house. As they turned over every proverbial and literal stone, there were some items of interest that caught their eye immediately. Technicians who were processing the scene noticed what appeared to be dry blood in some areas of the home, namely the living room and couch where Dylan was last known to be. After applying a luminol solution, the chemical reacted, indicating the presence of blood, leading forensic technicians on scene to take swab samples. Then on November 30th, 11 days after Dylan had first been reported missing, Mark spoke directly with the media. Well, it's been a tough time for all of us, I know. I, can, I, I know that it's been difficult on me, and I, I can only imagine how difficult it's been for his mom and his brother and his family over in the Colorado Springs area. And, you know, we're doing everything we can to try to find Dylan, and we want to keep the focus on finding Dylan. And, you know, I've been working with the investigators to make sure that, you know, all the bases are be, being covered on that end. And, you know... That's pretty much where I'm at with that. I mean, I'm doing everything I know how to do. I want to get I want to get the subject out of the way first. There's a lot of suspicion out there. Even when Elaine went on ABC News, right? She was. Can you can you address that? Um, well, I, I I can only imagine being a mother the frustration that of hearing about your son going missing and you know I, I can only think that that has to do with lashing out and trying to find who's accountable for this in this situation um, you know I've been working closely with the investigators to, to do what needed to be done because you know he it was last seen at my house I know there's rumors going around that he's been spotted by people and you know our concern is that you know something has happened to the point now where we're, we just want to keep in the public's eye you know Dylan's face and, and keep the focus on Dylan and you know don't worry about me and and everything's going to be all right on my end but I know this is only a troubling time for Elaine and, and my son Corey and I spoke with him last night and you know I'm surprised that we have been able to hook up today because you know one of the things that we're trying to do is unite together and, and I have my oldest son from the Phoenix area here and of course my brother's here so we're trying to unite as a family and stay focused on what's important here and, and you know everybody wants to focus on me but the focus isn't me right now the focus is finding Dylan and that's where I'm at. But as the days that Dylan Redwine had been missing began to pass, they slowly turned into weeks and eventually months. On February 4th, 2013, just two days before Dylan was set to turn 14 years old, Elaine sat down with KUSA for an exclusive interview to talk about her son's disappearance. I mean, it was serious when, you know, his dad texted me and said he hadn't heard from him, but I never thought that, you know, we'd be sitting here two months later and he wasn't here. So I guess the seriousness just grew and grew and grew as time went by. We checked that whole entire road for footprints of Dylan's, you know, just to see if there were any, because he had very distinctive shoe markings on, the, on, on his soles, and there was no footprints of his. And it just is very curious to me because, you know, I know Dylan. I know Dylan better than anyone other than maybe his brother, and I know he would have texted or called, you know, and, and let either myself or his friends know you know, what, what his plans were. It's not fair. You know, he's a 13-year-old boy. It's not fair that he's just out there in this big old world with no one to comfort him, no one to reassure him that everything's gonna be okay. That's my job, and somebody's taken that away from me, and it angers me. The 
following day, Mark sat down with the same media outlet and talked about how his own life was affected since Dylan's disappearance. Although there were many claims that his relationship with Dylan had been crumbling, Mark went on to explain that the two actually had a strong relationship, despite what Elaine had to say. We were inseparable. I mean, anywhere I was, he was right there beside me. You know, he would come to me before we would go to his mom. You know, I, I think in many ways that was part of the problems that developed in our relationship was because while she was out earning a career, it was very difficult for her to lose sight of the fact that she wasn't there bonding with Dylan the way I was. And I think that that was a huge problem for her. And I think that that has been a problem for her for a long time now. As Dylan's disappearance continued garnering national attention, both Mark and Elaine appeared on the Dr. Phil show. Elaine continued to stress the belief that Mark had some type of involvement in their son's disappearance and wanted him to take a polygraph. Mark, on the other hand, began pointing his finger in the other direction, stating that he believed Elaine had something to do with Dylan going missing. Elaine pointed out that any attempts to talk to Mark since their initial conversation, when Dylan was first reported missing, was thwarted because he blocked her number, leaving her no possibility of speaking with him. She also stated how odd it was for a 14-year-old in an age where teens are glued to their phones to simply shut his off, ceasing all contact with anyone and everyone at 9.30 p.m. during a holiday break. Mark, on the other hand, continued speculating that it was indeed possible that Elaine drove down overnight to abduct Dylan after he went to run errands and then caused him harm. It wasn't until Corey, Mark and Elaine's oldest son and Dylan's brother, came on the show and said straight to Mark's face that he was no father to either him or Dylan. The 21-year-old expressed the hatred he had for his father and shared the belief that Mark had in fact done something to harm Dylan. But was that truly even possible? If it was, why? From an outside perspective, it would appear to most that Mark loved Dylan. It was true that Mark worked a lot and was away from home at times, leaving Dylan to his own devices. But why would a father just up and decide to kill his teenage son? After all was said and done, the two parties walked away from the talk show, continuing to point fingers at one another. By April of 2013, search efforts continued and had focused near the Vallecito Reservoir. Michael, Dylan's stepfather, was driving down Middle Mountain Road, looking for an area where he could relieve himself. As he was driving, he saw Mark coming from the other direction in his pickup truck. When Mark realized it was Michael who was on the road, he quickly sped away. Michael attempted to chase after Mark, but turned in separate directions once they hit pavement. In the days following, Michael began installing game cameras on Middle Mountain Road he had seen Mark in the event he later returned. Despite holding out hope for as long as possible, time continued passing by, and on June 26th, eight months after Dylan had gone missing, investigators who had been searching the rugged terrain of Middle Mountain made a grisly discovery just a few meters off of an ATV trail. The following day, La Plata County Sheriff Dan Bender requested Mark and Elaine come to his office immediately to speak with them. While hiking the wooded, steep hillside in Middle Mountain, investigators came across what appeared to be skeletal remains. Testing of the bones later confirmed them to belong to Dylan Redwine. That same day, Mark spoke to the media, but declined to appear on camera, only relaying what was found via audio recording. They got 2% of his remains. That means 98% of them is still scattered out there in a tree somewhere. They found, I think, they said two femurs, a shoulder blade, bone, or something to do with the shoulder. Although Mark had believed that femurs had been found on the hillside of Middle Mountain, it had actually been a tibia, fibula, and clavicle bone. But those weren't the only objects found. Just a few feet away lay a shredded Chicago White Sox shirt, a shred of underwear, a sock, a shoe, and what appeared to be a pair of black earbuds, one of which appeared to have been cut. Shortly after speaking with Mark, the media spoke with Sheriff Dan Bender, who announced that as recovery efforts began to locate all of the remains, Dylan's death was then being classified as a homicide. On 
June 28th, La Plata County Coroner Jan Smith formally confirmed that Dylan's death was not caused by a predatory animal and was considered homicide by an unknown cause. What investigators believed happened, based on the location of the remains and the other items found, was that whoever had caused Dylan's death simply pulled along the ATV trail and threw his body down the steep embankment, allowing gravity to take his body down the hill. It was the worst possible outcome for a torn family, looking for any sort of hope that Dylan Redwine may still have been alive. On June 29th, family and friends gathered at Eagle Park to celebrate the life of a young teenager taken far too soon. Corey, Dylan's brother, expressed his love for his younger sibling. We love you and you'll never be forgotten. You're part of all of us now. And, you know, um, even though you're not here, we all know that you're watching over us and looking over us every moment. So. After confirmation of Dylan's death, efforts were still underway to recover the rest of his remains. While investigators were lucky to come across what they had found on June 26th, there was still nearly 95% of his remains out there somewhere in the wilderness. Because of the elevation in the area, there was only a certain time frame each year in which searchers could safely traverse the hillsides of Middle Mountain. When winter would approach, the snowpack not only made search efforts nearly impossible, but one wrong step could prove dangerous or possibly fatal. Despite the steeply wooded terrain, search efforts continued when the snow melted away and carried on over the course of the next two years. In August of 2015, nearly three years after Dylan had first gone missing, investigators once again searched Mark's home, and just five days after that search, the La Plata County Sheriff's Office had a major announcement in the case. Mark Redwine was now their prime suspect in the disappearance and murder of Dylan Redwine. August 29, 2015, 10 days after announcing Mark as the prime suspect in the case, Elaine sat down for an interview to talk about her journey towards justice for Dylan. It's one step closer to justice. I would rather have my son here, 16, you know, driving a car, going to prom. I, I would rather all those things happen. He was very bitter and very angry and very vengeful. I never thought he'd take it out on Dylan. Um, unfortunately, I was wrong. Ten days after Dylan went missing, investigators had initially combed through Mark's home and property. If you recall, Luminol indicated the presence of blood in the living room and on the couch where Dylan slept. Testing of the blood was consistent with that of Dylan Redwine. Unfortunately, blood evidence that was found was seen only as circumstantial. Investigators were tasked with piecing together the puzzle to figure out why a father, who so claimed to love his son, would do the unthinkable. By November of 2015, just one mile away from where Dylan's first set of remains were found, investigators were notified of what was likely the missing link. Leah Foster and her husband were out hiking in the Middle Mountain area and had stopped to have a picnic under what she described as a beautiful tree. The particular area the couple was in was frequented among hunters and was near a patch of neatly cleared land. They observed as cows were on both sides of the land separated by the trail they hiked in on. As they were walking the trail back, Leah was trailing her husband, taking in the nature surrounding her. When her husband stopped, bent over, and picked something up. We were hiking down um, a slope. We decided to go out and we ate lunch underneath the tree. And we saw some beautiful trees coming up, so we decided to go walk down an area. And went a little ways in, little streams everywhere. It was very beautiful. And then my husband picked up something and he said, Hey, honey, what do you think this is? And I saw it in his, I could see it in, in his hands. I was right behind him, a few steps behind him. I didn't know exactly until I got up right, you know, I took it from his hands and immediately I knew it was a human skull. Immediately, Leah contacted the La Plata County Sheriff's Office. Deputy Tanya Goldbrick arrived at the scene, and the couple directed her to the location. 
Typically, the coroner would be contacted in this situation to preserve the crime scene, but a storm was about to hit the mountainside. Deputy Goldbrick processed the skull, taking photos of where it was found, and then packaged it for transfer to coroner Jan Smith. After analyzing what was left of the upper portion of the cranium, coroner Smith was able to determine that Dylan had suffered from a skull fracture. A forensic anthropologist was also called in to assist who noticed an indentation in the bone, which likely indicated the use of a sharp instrument. The sharp instrument injury was determined to be caused to perimortem, while the bone was still wet. All the while evidence was being collected and analyzed, people from within Mark's inner circle came forward and started to point out some of his odd behavior in the days immediately following Dylan's disappearance. One of those people was a former co-worker of Mark's, who had seen him on the morning of November 19, 2012. According to this individual, when Mark had come into the office that morning while running errands, he began talking excitedly about one of his sons, although he didn't specifically state whether it was Corey or Dylan. The co-worker noted this as extremely odd because Mark wasn't one who typically opened up about his personal life, especially his children. Mark's first wife, Betsy Horvath, long suspected that Mark was involved in Dylan's murder. She even went as far as going on record with news station Denver 7. Do you think Mark did it? Absolutely. Why do you say that? Because it is violent. My reaction is that right now we are on the steps of a long road. And this, this is the beginning. And hopefully we can get justice for Dylan. Despite the fact that Mark Redwine had been formally named as a suspect, it wouldn't be until another two years before investigators felt confident they had the evidence that would completely tell the story. According to the state, the story they painted to the grand jury was the following. Their investigation found that at the time of Dylan's disappearance and subsequent murder, both Mark and Elaine were in the middle of a nasty and contentious custody battle over him. Despite the fact that Dylan had to visit his father via a court order, Dylan's relationship with his dad had crumbled beyond any hopes of repair. It was so bad that Dylan had actually begun to feel uncomfortable around Mark and had stated as much throughout most of 2012. At some point, Dylan had become aware of some photos that Corey had of their father, which were considered to be, quote, compromising in nature. Dylan felt that if he had been able to access the photos, he could confront his dad about them. So Corey sent the photos in question to Dylan and told Mark that he had sent the photos to Dylan. After Dylan's disappearance, friends of Elaine who were in the Durango and Vallecito area confronted Mark about the existence of the pictures and were met with a violent Mark who picked up a log and raised it high above his head, eventually chasing them off the property. The state also pointed to the use of cadaver dogs, that indicated the scent of a deceased human on several points throughout Mark's home, vehicle, and the clothes he was wearing on the evening of November 18, 2012. These indications by the dogs corresponded with the blood evidence initially discovered in the home. Shortly after Dylan's first set of remains were found, Brandon Redwine, Dylan's half-brother and Mark's oldest son, were having a conversation. Within that conversation, Mark had mentioned blunt force trauma several times and explained they would need to find Dylan's skull to determine his cause of death. Betsy, Mark's first wife, also stated that during their divorce proceedings, he would often violate custodial orders and once told her that he would, quote, kill the kids before letting them live with her. After this information was presented to a La Plata County grand jury on July 20th, 2017, an arrest warrant was formally issued for Mark Redwine's arrest charging him with one count of second-degree murder, knowing or reckless, resulting in death. Two days later, on July 22nd, Mark was on the road for work in Washington State. At around 6.40 a.m., Bellingham police officers who had been on the lookout for Mark's 18-wheeler observed his truck passing through. They then initiated a traffic stop. After successfully getting the truck to stop, officers cautiously approached the cab all of which was caught on body cam footage. Just keep your hands up, buddy. Just keep your hands up. No, no, no. I got the cap. Around me. Go around back. Yep. I got the cap. Around me. Go around back. 
Yep. Just keep your hands up. Don't move, Ben, okay? Do not move. I'm good. You guys can. You always explain to me what's going on? Yes, sir. Is your name Mark? Yes, it is. After Mark was detained and handcuffed, he was placed in the back of a police cruiser. After being read his Miranda rights, he began asking why he was being detained. Yeah, having those rights in mind, the reason why you're in handcuffs right now is is because uh, we received a uh, call from an agency in Colorado. You know, is it Washington County or is it? Do you... What, Wattic County, maybe? Okay. Um, and what had happened is they had got information that you were potentially up here, and they say that they had a uh, a warrant for murder second for you. I'm sorry? I have no idea what that's about. Okay. It is in the system. And that's why, obviously, we try to approach it as safely as we could because we don't want you to get hurt and we don't want us to get hurt. We all want to go home to our families and stuff like that. So I appreciate, from the sergeant perspective, I appreciate your cooperation in that. I was the one giving you the verbal warnings over the PA as we got going here. So. It's a little difficult to get out of the truck in that situation. Yeah. Well, it's like... And I'm looking at you going, holy crap, this guy's got a semi pointed right at me, and I don't know you from Adam, and all, all they're telling me is that they got a murder warrant for no, you. I have no problem. With you okay, so no, I, and I have no problem with what you did. I, I appreciate how cooperative you were with us. So, News of Mark's arrest spread quickly. For Elaine Hall, it couldn't have come soon enough. I'm happy that something is finally progressing within Dylan's case, and, you know, we uh, we just appreciate all the work that's that's been done by the new folks in, in La Plata County that have been appoint, appointed that have actually, you know, made a lot of this come to fruition. I don't think if there weren't changes in La Plata County, we would be here today. You know, it's just, it's bittersweet. I, you know, I'd rather have my son, um, but I can't change that fact. And so we will do as we've done for the last five years. And that is, you know, just keep pressing on and, you know, just keep Dylan's story out there and, and, and make, make the murderer be held accountable for what he did to Dylan. Corey, who had been an active proponent in the journey to justice for Dylan, shared his thoughts as well. We didn't know what the outcome would be, but we've always known that Mark was in some way, shape, or form involved in this. I'm sad that I've ever had to go through this, that Dylan had to go through this, and that, you know, all of this past five years has just, you know, been about who killed Dylan when it should have never happened in the first place. It's exciting to know that justice is coming for my little brother. With Mark Redwine now securely in custody, the state began preparing for a trial that would end up being nearly nine years in the making. For those closest to Dylan, the news of Mark's arrest was welcoming, but also quite bittersweet. The truth was, many of the family members held beliefs that Mark was somehow involved from the beginning and questioned why it had taken so long to charge him, especially since Dylan's remains had been mostly all but recovered by 2015, two years before Mark's arrest. Two days after he was formally charged with Dylan's murder, Mark Redwine appeared in court in Bellingham, Washington, held on a $1 million bond. It really stems from the uh, disappearance of Dylan Redwine, the uh, defendant's son, and he was last seen alive on November 18th, 2012, and he was actually uh, ordered by the court on a visitation to his father in uh, La Plata County, Colorado. Apparently it was against his wishes. He was a 13-year-old boy and also against the wishes of his, of his mother, but it was court-ordered. The last time uh, that the boy was seen was in November 18 of 2012, after he had gone to his father's house and was taken to the father's house in uh, the Rango La Pata, uh, County, Colorado. An investigation took place after that, after the boy had disappeared, and uh, subsequently, in June of 2013, 
Some of Dell and Redwine's remains were located eight miles uh, up Middle Mountain Road from the defendant's house. And it was an area that the defendant apparently was very familiar with and had access to through a, um, uh, apparently just a, an area of an ATV that he would ride. After that occurred, uh, the investigation continued and on August 5th, 2013, a human remains detection dog, a cadaver dog, was utilized uh, in the house of the defendant. And in the house, uh, the canine indicated the presence of cadaver scent in various locations in the living room, the washing machine, uh, also in Mr. Redwine's clothing that were uh, determined to have been worn on the last day that the boy was seen, November 18, 2012. I think under the circumstances of this case, it's appropriate for the court to uh, defer to the uh, Colorado court on this matter. Eventually, Mark was extradited back to La Plata County, Colorado where he would be held on the charges of second-degree murder and child abuse. On December 14, 2017, La Plata County District Attorney Christian Champagne held a press conference to explain their actions in issuing the arrest warrant for Mark. This case represents a terrible tragedy, a family's worst nightmare. When Dylan disappeared in 2012, we all lost something. The Redwine family lost an amazing, special young man and many of us in our community lost our sense of safety, trust, and security in our own homes for ourselves and for our children. Since that day, we have not stopped working for justice for Dylan. Now, I and my predecessor had to make the tough decision to exercise the patience necessary to make this case as strong as possible. Our patience has paid off, and we now believe we have the evidence we need to proceed forward and get justice for Dylan Redwine. As the state began preparing for trial, information began to leak to the press regarding the compromising photos that Dylan had supposedly been in possession of at the time of his disappearance. It was theorized early on that Mark had potentially killed his own son over a confrontation regarding these photos. But what had actually been captured in the pictures that made them so damning? Well, what we are about to describe regarding these photographs might just make your stomach turn. In 2011, when Corey was visiting his father's home with Dylan, he came across photos of his father defecating in diapers. Other photos showed Mark with feces smeared across his face, and other photos showed him eating feces out of both diapers and women's style underwear. If this were true, would Mark really be willing to kill his son over this? Well, the prosecution certainly believed it possible. If you recall, when friends of Elaine's had confronted Mark regarding the existence of the pictures, he quickly turned violent and threatened them with a log, subsequently chasing them off his property. Pete Klisman, a former FBI profiler, was consulted by La Plata County investigators in 2015 after Dylan's skull was recovered. They wanted an outsider's perspective who could review the case file and provide them with a professional profiler's insight. I simply wanted to look at everything I could look at and, and try to figure out who did this. Um, and it was an inescapable conclusion that it was Mark. When finding out about the photos, Pete, who noted Mark to have narcissistic traits, noted the following. Could that have caused Mark to go into a rage with his son yelling at him, perhaps? It may. There's no question in my mind that this case will go to trial. Mark will not plead guilty uh, because he's a narcissist. He believes he can lie his way out of anything. From 2018 to 2020, Mark Redwine's trial was postponed over and over and over again. He was originally slated to go to trial in November of 2018, but it was moved to a later date as the judge presiding over the case needed time to work through some of the pretrial motions. His trial was then moved to September of 2019, but was moved once again when his defense attorney was arrested on domestic violence and assault charges. The September trial was then moved to April of 2020, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, most all court hearings from around the country were put on hold. His trial was then pushed back until November of 2020, and the state, as well as those longing to see justice for Dylan, were hoping that it would finally happen. But just before jury selection was set to begin, in the new November 2020 trial, 
Judge Jeffrey Wilson began experiencing COVID-like symptoms, losing his sense of smell and taste. The trial was then temporarily suspended while they awaited the results of the judge's COVID tests. Both tests eventually came back negative, and the judge explained that his symptoms only persisted for a day. As the trial was set to resume, two of Mark's defense attorneys then came down with symptoms of their own. As a result, Judge Wilson rescheduled the trial for January 25th, 2021, with a hearing to take place on January 5th to ensure that the trial was feasible for both the state and the defense. When the hearing took place tentatively on the 5th, the court was once again forced to reschedule due to the pandemic. The court expressed it anticipated having to postpone once again, but also stated they were hopeful to begin sending jury summons out by mid-March for a June trial. Finally, after almost nine long years since Dylan Redwine first disappeared from his father's home, Mark Redwine's trial began on June 21st, 2021. When opening statements began, the prosecution laid out the fact that Dylan resented his father having many conversations with family and friends alike. After a thorough search of Dylan's phone records in the days after his disappearance, Dylan was trying to make any plans he could with friends to not stay at Mark's house. He was even willing to wake up early on November 19, 2012, to go to Ryan Nava's house. The state also explained that friends, family, and volunteers in the community, who didn't even know Dylan, were essentially on their hands and knees searching every possible nook and cranny, looking for the missing teenager, while Mark, his father, simply did not. For a man who claimed to love his son so much and that he was willing to do whatever it took to find him, he simply resigned himself to the background of ongoing search efforts. Prosecutors also pointed to the fact that Dylan's blood was found inside of Mark's home, the defense, on the other hand, wanted to show that Mark was an exemplary father who wanted nothing but the best for his son and that he cared for the young teenager more than people seemed to think. And because of the love and care he had for Dylan, they argued he could never have killed him. Instead, they theorized that Dylan had run away from Mark's home, leaving his cell phone charger behind, which would explain why his phone had suddenly gone dead. They also believed the young teenager had either been attacked by an animal or, in the worst-case scenario, another human, but that it wasn't Mark. After opening statements concluded, the first witnesses called to the stand were Dylan's friends, Ryan Nava and Amanda Saxton. Ryan spoke about making plans with Dylan on the evening of November 18th, after he had just arrived in the Durango area. He also recalled the afternoon of the following day when Mark showed up at his house looking for Dylan. Immediately, Ryan began texting his friend. Dude, your dad's looking for you. Are you alright, dude? As the hours passed, Ryan once again texted Dylan, stressing the importance of getting into contact with someone, anyone. Dude, you need to call somebody, anybody, ASAP. We're all worried about you. Your mom called and she's worried, bro. Seriously, when you get the messages, call someone. Amanda recalled the last text message she had sent to Dylan's phone on November 20th after finding out that he was missing. Dylan, I'm pretty sure you won't get this, but in case you do, I just wanted to tell you that I've liked you for I liked you forever. Like I love you and a I have loved you to this day and it breaks my heart to know you're gone and I hope we find you cuz you mean so much to me. You're amazing and hilarious. And I'm doing as much as I can to find you. I promise. Saxton, sorry. We have tissues right to your left there. Fine, just take your time. I promise I will find you. And that's a promise I'm willing to keep until the day I die. I love you. An explosive moment in the trial came when FBI agent John Grusing testified in the case. Agent Grusing recalled asking Mark about the blood found in his house. Mark told the agent that Dylan had been suffering from a cold sore that had broken open and started bleeding. Agent Grusing explained to Mark that he would be confirming the cold sore with Elaine, which then caused Mark to quickly change his story. He 
told the FBI agent that both him and Dylan had been playing football and that during one of his throws to his son, the ball hit him in the face, causing his lip to bleed and drip on the floor of the home. It became quickly apparent to the FBI agent that Mark was inconsistent with his story and lied about Dylan ever being hurt inside of the home. The prosecution also called Dr. Robert Kurtzman, a forensic anthropologist, to the witness stand to give his expert testimony regarding the discovery of Dylan's remains. Although Dr. Kurtzman was unable to determine exactly how Dylan died, he stated that in his professional opinion, Dylan had suffered a skull fracture perimortem or around the time of his death. He also stated that markings on Dylan's cranium indicated the use of some type of sharp instrument, likely a knife, and that the markings were not caused by animals. But the defense felt they had an adequate rebuttal for Dr. Kurtzman's testimony, calling their own forensic anthropologist to the stand. Dr. Bruce Anderson opined that Dylan's skull was indeed fractured, but that the fracture likely occurred in the weeks following his death. He also stated his belief that a wild predatory animal was the cause of Dylan's death, explaining that it was indeed possible for a coyote or other animal to have carried the skull away from where the initial remains were found. Although an animal attack isn't outside of the realm of possibility, prosecution called biologist Heather Johnson to the stand. She explained that attacks on humans from bears and mountain lions were rare, and it just so happened that in 2012, the very year Dylan disappeared, she was in a multi-year study involving bears in the Durango area. She told the jury that over 400 bears had been collared with GPS technology, and the research program that she was studying in was tracking hibernation habits, conflicts with humans, and their general behaviors in the Durango area. Furthermore, she explained that a bear attack on Dylan would have been highly unlikely as the bears they were tracking had all begun hibernating earlier in 2012, starting in the beginning of October, with the last bear entering hibernation on November 11th, eight full days before Dylan was reported missing. This information poked several holes in the defense's theory. Another key witness for the prosecution was Mark's own son, Brandon, who recalled a suspicious conversation that he had with his father. The amount of time that I was talking to him, there were a lot of things. But about that time, we still didn't have any idea of where he was. And there was a lot of conversations about um, how Dylan could have been hurt, whether it was hunters, whether he was attacked by animals and he always said with blunt bo- or if it was blunt force trauma but his voice changed so distinctively when it came to blunt force trauma i was talking to him and if you know where he's at why are we still looking and he was just telling me dylan's in my heart and i remember thinking that's just a bs answer it doesn't make sense but as your son missing brandon also stated I figured Mark knows something. I didn't know what he knew. I didn't know how he knew it. I remember telling my wife, he's telling me what happened. And he's not telling me what exactly was used. But we don't have enough information to be thinking about blunt force trauma. Brandon's mother, Betsy Horvath, took the stand and recalled a conversation she had with Mark over 30 years prior on a camping trip that stuck with her over the years. A conversation she recalled immediately after Dylan had gone missing. She explained that the two had been camping out in a mountainous area and that her ex-husband said the area would be, quote, a good place to get rid of a body. This statement terrified Betsy as she thought her ex-husband had taken her out there to kill her. But when Dylan went missing, she recalled feeling sick to her stomach over the comments that had been previously made. The defense, however, also called Mark's former girlfriend, Karen Alexander, to the witness stand. She testified that she had dated Mark back in 2011 and saw him as a, quote, attentive father who very much loved his son. Karen also stated that she had recalled when Dylan sliced his finger and had been dripping blood on the floor of the home. She opined that she didn't have any belief that Mark was capable of killing Dylan, as she saw nothing but a loving and doting father for his son. Five weeks after the trial began, all witnesses had been called and given their testimony in the case. And just prior to closing arguments beginning, Mark opted not to testify. On July 15th, the prosecution began their closing arguments. 
They asked the jury to return a guilty verdict because not only did the evidence point towards Mark Redwine, but as Deputy District Attorney Michael Doherty stated, this case was a perfect example of Occam's razor, whereby the simplest explanation is usually the best one. Doherty stated the following, Dylan started to realize things about his father, the incredible hatred he had for his mother and brother at times, the way he acted, the things he liked, and their relationship had deteriorated incredibly over the past couple of months before the murder took place. Mark's defense team, however, pressed the jury to consider the reasonable doubt presented before them. There was no murder weapon and no cause of death. They stated that the local law enforcement as well as government officials didn't actually know what happened. Mark's defense attorney, Justin Bogan, stated, If they don't know, you don't know. The day after closing arguments had begun, the jury deliberated and came to a final conclusion in the verdict, which Judge Wilson read aloud in court. Mr. Redwine, would you please stand up? Jury verdict count number one, murder in the second degree. We, the jury, find the defendant, Mark Redwine, guilty of count number one. Be quiet, please. Murder in the second degree, signed by Mr. Parker. Jury verdict, count number two, child abuse. We, the jury, find the defendant, Mark Redwine, guilty of count two, child abuse, uh, signed by Colin Parker. Further, we, the jury, find that with respect to the verdict question as to this count, as follows. Did the child abuse result in death? The answer is yes, signed by Mr. Parker. unfortunate truth is that up to 460,000 children are reported missing in the United States each year. While some are found, others are not, and many are never actually even reported missing. In many of those cases, parents never lose hope. They fight and search and continue to look for their children. And that was Elaine Hall, who continued looking for Dylan against all of the odds who trusted her maternal instinct that Mark was being suspicious when first telling her of their son's disappearance. She fought for nearly nine years to get justice for her son's tragic death. Standing outside of the La Plata County Courthouse, Elaine Hall and Corey Redwine spoke to the media, giving their thoughts on the verdict. It's been a long nine years. It has been a very long nine years. Your thoughts when you heard that guilty verdict? You know, this, this entire process has been surreal from the moment Dylan went missing until we found his remains. You know, we've lived in this world of, of, of not knowing what's, what happened to my son. We all have speculations. I think the defense or the prosecution did a wonderful job in laying out what happened to my son in the last hours of his life. And I think it was pretty clear that the right verdict was given today. Corey, uh, what was going through your mind when you heard uh, the, gu the guilty verdict? Um, that the right person um, was held accountable. And as a collective family and everything that we put through it and all the hard work, it was a relief um, for all of our family to know that the hard work was paid off with a guilty verdict. Were there any mixed feelings because it was your father? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, would rather be here to see him under different circumstances. Um, but the circumstances, he's, um, you know, guilty for killing my little brother. And um, that'll be the last um, time, you know, I ever see or he'll be the last day he'll ever be in my life. So Mark Redwine's sentencing has been scheduled for October 8th, 2021. He faces up to 48 years in prison for the second-degree murder of his son, Dylan. We 
all have embarrassing stories, some of which are tame and can be shared publicly. Sometimes we have quirks that we hide away in the depths of our closets, stowed away from the public's eye, but if found out, could be owned up to without ever having to do damage control. Other people have kinks or dirty little secrets that could derail their entire public image, if ever found out, and would be willing to hide them at any cost. But is it ever worth harming a friend, relative, or even worse, your own flesh and blood? In this case, only Mark Redwine knows the answer to that question. <laughs> 